Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Human Challenge, where we explore all the human challenges in today's world, the challenges of being human, and how we can challenge ourselves to be more human for the greater good. I'm your host, Vanessa Ferlano, and today we are talking to Osprey Oriel Lake, founder and executive director of the Women's Earth and Climate Action Network. She also sits on the executive committee for the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature and is also on the steering committee for the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. She also writes about climate justice, relationships with nature, women and leadership, and other topics that have been featured in The Guardian, Earth Island Journal, and The Ecologist, and many other articles. She's also just released The Story is in Our Bones, a beautiful cover, beautiful book. I am so happy that you're here, Osprey. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. I um, I know we were just chatting a couple minutes ago, and like I was so touched and so moved by your book. Um, it was just like my experience reading it. I felt like I was reading a documentary. It was so phenomenal, you know, just the tie-in of your own experiences, and, but then the cultural significance of your experiences, but then also of what you learned going through many of these experiences, uh, historical context, like mythology, <laughs> like there's like everything in there. And it was so, so beautiful. And I really felt myself learning and being educated, but also addressing my own stuff, you know, also realizing kind of my own biases and some of my own um, things that I needed to address to be able to really appreciate and look at climate justice in a very different way. And so I I was kind of hoping before we get into more specific about the books, if you could tell us a bit more about, you know, you, your journey and how, because you, you talk about so much, how did all of these things come together into a book this way? <laughs> I, I love that description of it, of it, that it came across as a documentary to you. I, I think that that's wonderful. I haven't heard that before. And I, I think I really like it um, because it, it, there is, you know, memoir in it as a portion, but it's, you know, basically a historical analysis of how we got into this, what, you know, some scholars are calling a polycrisis right now. Um, but to, to get to your question, you know, for me, um, uh, we can is over a decade now, and on a daily basis, we're working, you know, very much on the front lines of so many issues. We have programs on deforestation and reforestation. We have projects on food sovereignty and food security. We um, bring delegations of frontline women to the UN climate talks to speak for themselves, and we're very involved in that advocacy work. We're fighting fossil fuel pipelines. Um, so <clears throat> there's this very exciting everyday work that I'm really dedicated to. And I feel so honored to work with so many amazing women leaders around the world. All that said, there is also, I think, not just me, but a lot of us stepping back and kind of going upstream and saying, wow, how did we get into this catastrophe that we're in truly from, you know, the climate crisis escalating, environmental degradation, um, the fact of, of the root causes of these um, crises we're facing really began to, you know, manifest in my mind as something that had to be addressed. So as an example, if tomorrow we could wave a wand and the climate crisis was gone, it really would not resolve environmental degradation. It wouldn't handle the fact that we still have an extractive economy that's destroying the earth and capitalism and endless economic growth. It doesn't resolve uh, environmental racism or racism in general. It doesn't stop the, the imperialist colonized project of so many wealthy countries. And so 
or patriarchy, which is also at the core of this. So for me, it was a journey into, I really want to understand and took myself on the journey and hopefully the reader on a journey of let's unpack where we've been, because I truly believe we have to have a historical context to then arrive at how we got here, to then look at where we want to go. And I think a lot of us are working on really wonderful ideas about, you know, a just economy and how do we live in a decolonized uh, context and what does a feminist economy look like? And, you know, what does it mean to center indigenous rights and respect indigenous people? I mean, we have a lot of things we're talking about, which we need to keep talking about and surfacing and telling stories about, but also what is the space in between? Where, what is, how do we get from where we are to where we're going? For me also requires going through the process We can't just poof over there. I wish we could, but we are on the journey. We humans have created these social constructs and we have to go on the journey to then arrive at the world that that we want, that is equitable and and healthy with nature. Absolutely. I love that so much. Um, You know, one of the things that I find myself always saying in conversations is like, we've created this, but we can create something else, right? We can uncreate it and we can create something different that is more equitable. And and I think that's a very empowering message because especially when we talk about things like patriarchy, colonialism, sometimes you feel boxed in, right? You feel boxed in because it's a system and, and it's it's intentional, right? It's like meant to make you feel that way. So you feel you have no, you have no other choice, but it's like that reminder that it's like, that is just you're just being told that that is fear being instilled into you. You actually do have this power. And if we all kind of internalize that and realize that, right, we could come together and create something that is completely different than what we are living in today. And so I love that message. And, um, you know, I also found myself too reading this. I felt like as a woman, I felt myself proud reading this because, you know, you mentioned so many different like women leaders and, and, you know, like, and I, uh, if I remember correctly, a lot of your stories focused a lot around uh, like women in uh, Latin America, like indigenous women fighting for like land rights. And like, I was like proud as a woman reading these stories. And I was like, I wish I knew these stories. Like, why are these not taught to me in schools? Why do I not hear about these women in my education system? Because you know, like they are, it was just, it was like, I really felt proud as, as a woman, like reading a lot of these stories. And I was like, yes, I was actually reading this on a plane and I was like in the dark and I couldn't see, I was on like the red eye, but I, I was so into it. I had to, I had to read them because I was just so proud. Honestly, it was, it was really great. And, um, I guess, I guess I'm curious because like I mentioned the documentary style, uh, to me anyways, reading it, um, was that when you kind of sat down and said, I want to write this, was that intentional or did it just kind of come from, cause like you said, it is your own, also your own processing in a way too. Right. So did it, did it come organically or did you sit down and say, I need to plan the book and I'm going to write it like this. And then what was that experience like as the writer? Wow. That's a really interesting question. Um, I definitely didn't think of, I'm like the documentary terminology, which I really love that you came up with it. I'm sure I'm going to really be thinking about that. Um, I, I really <laughs> like that you mentioned it in that way. Um, I, what I wanted to do when I set out to write the book and sort of mapped it out. And then, you know, I think I'm not alone in this as a writer. I mean, you start out with a map and then the book does have its own life and takes you into directions you didn't know, which I think is exciting because part of the reason that I write is to learn. Like I wrote the book that I wanted to 
uh, integrate, as you mentioned earlier on, a lot of different information. How did these puzzle pieces fit together and have a comprehensive view of how we arrived at this moment where we actually have the solutions that we need that are actually equitable and healthy for the earth. But the systems we're in and the way our governments are operating and our financial institutions and industry are completely not deploying and implementing the world that we want. And so that became sort of the driving question and how things got lined up in the, the storytelling and the direction is I wanted to sort of take people on a journey of how we got to where we are. And, and so um, some of that was, you know, through personal stories, but also historically looking at the roots of patriarchy, looking at the roots of colonization, looking at the roots of capital, um, capitalism, looking at the roots of, of uh, racism. And obviously these are each could be huge books all into themselves. So, you know, I can only touch upon pieces, but what I, I wanted to really show that this, these are interlocking systems, that everything is connected, that it's not separate. And I should add militarism, especially as we're looking at these wars and seeing, you know, the relationship between the fossil fuel industry and wars and the relationship between colonization and what is going on in Gaza. And so I feel that if we can't see this holistic picture, we are sort of poking at pieces of it. And that's very important. Every part we do, every corner of the world that we're bringing healing and change, I'm all for it. But I realized, you know, I wished in my youth I had had a book to sort of like, how does this fit together? And how does the patriarchy relate to how we're treating the earth? And how there's violence against women that's connected completely to the violence against the earth because there's been a huge uh, effort to, in the rise of patriarchy, to diminish the feminine. And, oh, there's a connection there of why women are violated and the earth are violated. These kinds of things became very important, um, you know, and, and the fact of why it's so important that we center indigenous and black and brown women because of the oppression against them. Like people like to say that, but why is that important? Well, because they're being the ones being impacted first and worst, but also they're central to solutions because they're the ones who've been dealing with these crises longer. And so the whole book is really a weaving of how things are interconnected so we can begin to address solutions holistically. Otherwise, we continue to perpetuate the oppressions. Right. Absolutely. And and that was what I appreciated so much about your book. It was just, it was like, it was about climate justice, but it was about everything, but it wasn't overwhelming in the way that it was about everything, right? Like it was all, it all connected and it connected so well. And yeah, you know, like I said, I was pausing every kind of chapter and really reflecting um, and really feeling a sense of pride, I think, you know, um, especially there's a chapter She Rises, and I know you were talking a lot about, um, that was a chapter I remember that really did highlight very specific stories about women, um, leadership, about women that were, I think you call it sustainable leadership, I think that was a term that, or leaders in sustainability, I think it was. Um, and you went through a lot of different, um, I think a lot of them were women that you had met, and then also women that I think you just kind of knew of as well through your own networks. And so. Um, I was very, you know, again, proud to see that, but then also a part of me that says there needs to be more of us. <laughs> there needs to be more of us. And so I'm I'm curious, you know, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe touching a bit on the, I guess, history of how we were a matriarchy 
uh, system before patriarchy kind of came and like took over because you did go through the history of that, which is absolutely fascinating. And then how we're witnessing the shift maybe coming back around to matriarchy again. But I'm curious how you might see that that scaling of women leadership being more um, available, exposed, that kind of thing, or being more prominent, let's say is the better word, um, as we maybe go through these shifts again. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're, you know, there's, we're, you know, building on decades of feminist movements and feminist leaders and different waves of feminism. And so, you know, it's an ongoing process to, you know, if you will, dismantle these systems of patriarchy and rebuild egalitarian societies. And so we're in different phases of that right now. And, you know, I would note that, you know, um, and, and of course, there's academics who work in this field have very precise terminology around this um, and, you know, get into arguments and things about this, but, you know, in a, in a healthy way, good, good discourse. But, you know, there's sort of these waves of feminism that were only for white women that left black and uh, uh, indigenous and brown women out. So there's a phase of, you know, really dealing with what is feminism today that is inclusive and really centers everyone. Um, there's also the fact that we have gender diverse leaders now and mixing that into our concepts of feminism as well. So, you know, it's a really large topic. And in terms of, of the growth of it, I think I would start by saying, you know, women have always been leading the way, always have been at the center of resistance movements and have always been leading, even if it has been concealed. So the scale is there. I would say the scale is there. It's under appreciated, underreported, under acknowledged and diminished. It's just never been gone. And so really, I think the project of the moment is to visibilize what women have been doing and also create an equal playing field, if you will, um, that really gives women agency to do the work they're already doing. Because I can tell you from you know being in charge of a women's network on climate, women are the ones who are leading these resistance movements, if it's a fossil fuel project or protecting water. Um, to the highest levels of the best uh, environmental policies. Um, and I'll just give a, a little factoid, just a few to get get some of these concepts um, a little bit more clear. You know, as an example, um, 40 to 80% of all household food production in the global South is all done by women. You know, farming, localized food is being done by women and the collecting of the seeds and all of that, um, you know, in areas that are really drought stricken. Uh, United Nations and other groups have gone in to you know, provide these water programs, but they found if you don't put women leadership around the programs, they don't work because they're collecting the water, they're caring for their families, and they're watching the water tables, and they're caring for their local economy, um, dealing with their resources. And so they tried to put men in charge because of the patriarchal concept of who should be in charge, and it flopped, and they needed to bring the women in. And so there's so many examples of that. Or uh, one, I was asked to do a presentation at the Scenarios Forum which is a group of researchers who then fill, uh, feed the IPCC reports for the United Nations. Um, and um, the study I found that was really interesting is that with just a one unit increase in something called the, in, uh, the Women's Political Empowerment Index, which is you know kind of uh, a wonky term, but the Women's uh, Political Empowerment Index, which just shows are women involved in politics? Are they socially involved? Do they have mobility? Do they have voice in their country? If you just increase that by one unit, 
you get an 11.51% decrease in carbon emissions, which is huge. There's not that much you can do to get like over 10% decrease in carbon emissions. And just this one unit increase of women being having more agency and power does that. And not that everything's about carbon reduction emissions, but just to show this fact of what happens when you put women in leadership roles, or even during the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw all these reports coming out that countries led by women did far better in caring for their populations. And, you know, it's for me, it's not about putting men down. It's about lifting women up and visibilizing the work that we're doing and understanding that we're bringing so much to the table, um, both technically and um, in terms of our knowledge. But I will also add from doing a lot of delegations with women, we're also bringing our emotional and spiritual intelligence to the table. And this turns out to really matter, like our stories, our narrative, our heart, and getting out of, you know, when I'm in these meetings with different industry leaders or financial institutions, we've got to get off of the, um, you know, the chart and the page of, you know, how we're going to have better financial returns this month into a discussion about the impact of real human beings, family, and lives. And I think women are really well equipped to do that. Not that men can't, but at this point in time, I think we really need a full bodied lived experience of what women are bringing to the table legally, professionally, emotionally, spiritually in every realm. And so, yeah, this is, this is a moment for women rising, as you said. (laughs) No, it, um, yeah, I, I really love all of that a lot. It all really resonates. Um, I love the data and, and you know, I'm I'm reminded of there was the one I can't remember I'm pretty I know it was one of the Latin American activists and, and um one of the stories you were sharing how they I forget one of the quote about how women can literally do anything. They literally walk with their children on their back and, and like get to these these sites, to these strikes, to the marches and, and um you know, yeah, I think, like you said, I think it's about lifting women up, right? And and because the very nature of patriarchy is so, so shame-based, right? That it, it is it is just, it's sometimes I feel personally, it's like engraved in me that I'm not allowed to, to be honored for my achievements or to celebrate my achievements or to even be heard for them, right? And then again, I think that it's really the nature of patriarchy. That's what it does. And I think it impacts everybody, right? Um, and so I think, yeah, this message of, you know, lifting women and lifting everybody together, right? So there's more visibility. I really appreciate that a lot. Um, maybe to zero in on one of the goddess, because we're talking about women, the goddess of, um, it was in- Inanna? Now I forget. I asked you before. Inanna. Inanna. Inanna, yes. And so you mentioned her and, and you were talking about how, uh, I think, I think, I literally think this was the direct line in the book was she was honored for both her fierceness and her benevolence and which was because they are not considered opposing forces. And I love that so much. And I think, you know, on a personal note, I think that's my own personal journey, something I'm sort of trying to balance for myself. You know, how can I be this fierce person, but still be graceful? Because I think in mainstream media and society, what we see of like fierceness in women is not that it's like badass, but like, you know, how is beauty portrayed? And so um, I'd love to hear your perspectives around that. And also if there's that connection between patriarchy, colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is also why I think a historical analysis is so important because we look at, um, you know, and I gave many examples in the book of different goddesses from different traditions, because I think it's really healthy for women and gender diverse leaders to just really see some of the, the, the power of the ancestry that we come from. 
And that's also really part of this healing process is also reclaiming our ancestral roots and being grounded in that, how empowering that is. Um, but within the highlight, as you mentioned, you know, that we, uh, in our mind, you're, you're being, um, you know, not reasonable um, and, you know, that women are over emotional or all these things that categorize how we should be acting as women, which is completely ridiculous and not only ridiculous, but unfortunately terribly harmful. And so, you know, most of us growing up as girls and young women in the society, you know, we have these huge disconnects with ourselves because we are all at once fierce, all at once loving, all at once creative, all at once playful, all at once grieving, all at once everything that a human being is. And this is also true for men, but we're talking about women right now. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's really healthy to to see that that feminine power of, of the image of Inanna in this text that I share of an ancient poem about her really shows her, you know, with her dragon teeth and that time for, for women to say in, to, to stand in there, which I have felt, and I'm sure we all have in different ways and it comes out in different ways. You know, for me, it happens, perhaps I'm in, you know, some kind of negotiation with government leaders or talking to financial institution and that fierceness of, you know, not, <laughs> not attacking someone inappropriately, but fiercely talking about, we're fighting for our lives or you're destroying the water. Our children are going to be destroyed. And fiercely being able to stand for that or you know some of us being willing to be arrested over concerns that we have and standing there and saying no I stand for this and I'm willing to get arrested to protect this water or to protect this land and this is where I stand um, and I you know particularly look at the fierceness of some of the women you mentioned in the global south who are literally putting their bodies on the line and some of them have been murdered or their lives threatened for their incredible stance to protect their communities and their culture and their forests uh, from extractive industries. I mean, we're talking about incredible fierceness and warrior's power, but also remembering or and remembering that it is generated from love. So on yeah. the same token, where is that coming from is a deep love and passion for the earth, for future generations, for current generations, for the web of life. And so you know, we can at once be fierce and turn around and hold our children and and sing them a lullaby to bed, a love lullaby, because we love them so dearly. Or go for a walk in the forest and commune with nature and be quiet in meditation and, uh, you know, feeling the essence of the natural world and listening. So this is all of who we are. We need to really redefine what it means to be the feminine and not be locked into these cultural contexts that really uh, constrict our power, are meant to re constrict our power and meant to silence us. And we need to break down uh, those, those uh, constructs because they're false. And it's part of our healing process. And actually the whole world needs it. It's good for men and women, and it is good for the earth. And there's nothing like a, a grandmother scolding you to put you in your place. <laughs> Very true. I can attest to that. <laughs> Um, maybe just continuing on this thread, cause we were talking about, um, you mentioned, you know, we were talking about fierceness of women and how, you know, there are women being killed. And so, you know, that was something that also stuck out to me in the book, this connection between gender-based violence and climate justice. And, um, maybe, maybe sharing a little bit more about that, just kind of in general, um, you know, what is that connection? How's that connected? 
um, especially when we talk about capitalism, colonialism, you know, you're welcome to go into a little bit more, even like the um, historical context, like how those all sort of came to be together, right? Like how they sort of impacted each other, I guess you could say. Um, and then uh, how, how, how they're connected and how we can kind of make them both better. I think how we can alleviate both and maybe even through the honoring of these goddesses and you're talking about healing as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm going to give the real short notes on that because it's a really, really big question. Um, but just to line things up and then I would encourage people to, to go further with it because, um, you know, one of the reasons that the book is on the longish end um, and people can read it in sections is that it's very difficult to get into nuances in sound bites. And so um, I'm going to give some sound bites, but I just really want to say that it, it really takes some time to walk our, ourselves through this. So in, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, there was a time, not everywhere, nothing was perfect, but we can point to historically egalitarian times where societies had more balance between female male relationships. And certainly in current indigenous communities today, there can be that. So it's not everyone and not everything is even and not everything is applied to everyone. So I just want to keep pointing out, like we're talking about the dominant culture and, and that means more, you know, Western society getting into concepts of white supremacy, et cetera. So, you know, we, we have, you know, these somewhat egalitarian societies, some of them very strong egalitarian societies. We see the rise of patriarchy, which comes with it, um, this not only role as male as superior, but also a lot of these religions that put forth monotheism, the one male God. and mm-hmm the the downcasting of the goddess and all that is female so there's a direct relationship to you know which is also why the sub uh subtitle of the book is how worldviews and climate justice can remake a world in crisis because we also need to look at our worldviews and so i'm not you know someone saying that religions are bad i just think that they need to be composted and regenerated in a new form because there's uh, still too much of this dominion over nature, dominion over women, dominion over uh, hierarchies within those um, uh, uh, different uh, constructs of religion, religious thought that continue to perpetuate these ideas that I think are, are quite detrimental. And so we see with the rise of patriarchy, also monotheism, they go hand in hand of the one male God casting down the goddess, casting down the feminine, which also, this male god is not connected to the earth anymore. This is a god in the sky only. And so we see, and of course, this took thousands of years to uh, begin this disassociation. And what I see is like an orphanage from the earth of disconnecting from the fact that the river is alive, the tree is alive, we're part of the web of life. Everything we do is connected. All of a sudden, that uh, narrative was usurped. And now we have this one male God who's in charge of everything. And we put men in the charge of the household and men in charge of everything. And so the interweaving between the rise of the patriarchy, um, the, the loss of the goddess in so many places of the world, the loss of an animate living earth in direct relationship to the land can then leave openings for there to be, um, you know, if you have a hierarchy. Well, let's just add in racism. So now we can have a hierarchy of white people over 
people of color or um, indigenous, brown or black folks. Or now let's also have dominion over nature since we have men at the top and this one omniscient God who's not connected to the land. So now we can own the land. And this also brings forward this whole idea of, um, you know, that the land is resource for us to use. And again, capitalism and colonization fit into these same things, because again, you have to have a hierarchy to have colonization. These people are more important than those people. So you can go ahead and colonize them. And once you colonize them, you can start making money off of them. So then we can have, you know, resources and capitalism. Again, I'm being almost cartoonish in going through this so quickly. But, you know, you were asking sort of how are these things laced? So I'm trying to just sort of give an yeah. overview of the interconnections as best I can. But, you know, there is a, a deep truth in this. And also, I would just add that, um, you know, so part of what I'm also getting at in my book is, you know, when you're, you're asking about like, well, how do we start getting at some of these things is one awareness and educating about this. But also, um, my experience, lived experience and research, research has shown me that, you know, some of why we're being so rapacious in the dominant society is that once people start feeling an orphanage from the land, like we're not rooted to a living earth, there's this giant well of grief and despair and emptiness and loneliness and unbelongingness that I see turn into violence. It turns into incredible violence and identity crises, which we're seeing playing out everywhere. And so we see more and more violence and more and more consumerism, which I consider a form of violence in terms of extraction, to fill up this great void of orphanage and rootedness in the land and with community and each other. And that's sort of the project that we're in right now is how are we going to heal this? And so there's lots of examples in the book about, you know, how do we intervene in programs and projects and ideas and interventions and governance structures to, to bring in this new narrative of belonging. And this is where rights of nature comes in and the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, like really practical ways that we can start addressing immediately these crises and, and advocating for them and enacting them. Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually probably just going to pause for a second because I really want everyone to just like take in those words for a second because, um, you know, they're, it's, it's a lot to take in, but it is, it's, it's like, it's truthful, I guess, you know what I mean? And, and, and that's what I mean. Like, like all that is so wonderfully laid out in the book, um, that it's not like, it, it is in a way where it's just, it makes sense, right? Like I read all these things and I wasn't overwhelmed by it. Like I was saying before, it was very much like, it all made sense. And it was in a way where I could like connect the dots for myself too. And a lot of what you're saying, um, you just said something around what you were considering as violence and like extraction and consumerism, right? Like it's, it's, it's true, right? Like it's truthful and it all resonates really, really well. And so I'm really grateful for how you just laid that out right now in a very short period of time, <laughs> acknowledging that it's like all just kind of sound like you do need to go through the book. And like, like you said, go through that exploration of it. Cause when you explore it for yourself, you see it and you feel it, right? Um, and so I really appreciate that. Um, you started to talk a bit about the rights of nature. Um, maybe, and this is also a little bit more of a broader question, but then did, did you want to talk a bit about why, like go into a little bit more detail about why that is a solution for all these things, for climate justice, capitalism, women's rights, et cetera, and maybe share a little bit more with us about that. Sure, sure. And just to say, um, I think it's one of the, 
the tools in our toolkit, but it's one that I really love. I mean, I think that there's, you know, uh, the role of Indigenous peoples and Indigenous rights is also something I would really want to highlight, um, that we really need to be sitting at the feet of Indigenous peoples at this time who have lived in harmony with the natural world and have so much to offer us. And, um, you know, recognize that 80% of all the biodiversity left on earth is in the hands and lands of Indigenous peoples. And their rights is part of our climate justice work to do. And so I just wanted to bring that forward as well as, you know, women's leadership as we've been talking about. But, and I also mentioned Indigenous peoples now as I talk about rights of nature, because even though rights of nature as a form of earth jurisprudence or earth philosophy is new in terms of our modern society, the deep roots of it go back to indigenous philosophy. So I just wanted to make that bridge. And so basically, I'm very excited um, to be on the for many years. And to me, it's a really powerful um, worldview and legal framework that can is big enough to house a lot of the topics we're talking about today. So what it means is instead of nature being viewed as property, which is again within this colonial concept, and capitalistic concept and the commodification and financialization of nature, meaning everything is for sale, every forest, every tree, every waterway, everything is commodified. It's taking nature out of the marketplace and saying, no, this is the web of life. We need to turn our economy and our legal system upside down to put nature in the center. And so therefore, instead of seeing nature as property, nature needs to be viewed as a rights-bearing entity. Because we have the legal systems that we have. So how do we utilize them to bring in new ideas? So as an example right now, an ecosystem cannot be represented in a court of law because there are no rights for forests. There are no rights for the river. It has to be the property of a human. So what rights of nature does is totally turn this on the head and said, no, a river can have rights. Forests can have rights and they can be re represented in a court of law. And this is really revolutionary and evolutionary, actually, <laughs> about where we need to be going. And um, to, to put it in uh, some practical terms, you know, it's not just a concept. Uh, these rights of nature laws have actually been implemented and enacted. And as an example, in 2008, Ecuador became the first country in the world to put rights of nature into their constitution. And, you know, their constitution talks about that you know, nature has a right to thrive and flourish and be healthy. And so there's been several cases now in Ecuador, uh, you know, rivers that have been protected under rights of nature legislation from extractive harms. So it, it's actually also a really powerful winning strategy. In the United States, there's been like three dozen cases of local ordinances that have stopped fracking projects using rights of nature. Um, when, and, there, and it's a really fast-growing movement. The UN uh, Secretary General just was mentioning last year that Earth jurisprudence, which rights of nature is a part of, is one of the fastest uh, environmental movements growing all over the world. Um, we see um, uh, in Colombia a rights of nature case that went through to protect the Amazon forest. And one last one I'll share, because um, there's, there's so many, and it's, it's just really exciting what's going on. And you know, for us at WeCan, we're really trying to push the idea of the United Nations adopting a universal declaration on the rights of nature, rights of Mother Earth, so that it can be deployed uh, across the world. Um, but um, I was really honored to go to New Zealand several years ago with one of our dear partners, Movement Rights, who helped organize a um, fact-finding mission because the Maori people there have been fighting for over 100 years to protect the Wanganui River. 
And they see the Wanganui River as their relative, as their living ancestor, as, as is true with a lot of indigenous people and seeing, seeing nature as relative. And um, they were able, after a hundred year struggle, to have uh, the New Zealand government recognize uh, the Wanganui River um, as a living relative. And there's a representative from the government and a representative from the Wanganui tribe that are custodians of the river, not owning the river, not controlling the river, but custodians of this living ancestor. And it was so beautiful to be there. I met with some of the Maori elders who brought me to the river and sang some beautiful songs where we were at the river. And it was just so moving. And one of the elders, um, she took my hand and said, we have a saying here, I am the river and the river is me. I am the river and the river is me. And the way she said it so moved me in my entire body and reminding me that as human beings, we're primarily water and that it's not conceptual. Like, no, I am the river and the river is me. This, this is my living relative and how we can shift our view, speaking of worldviews to this revitalizing of this understanding of the animacy of life, that we're living in an animate world. The stones are alive. The mountains are alive. The sky is alive. That we're part of this beautiful, magnificent cosmology, this living cosmology. And I think this is part of the rights of nature movement is a legal framework, but it's also a, a deepening of our culture and spiritual understanding of who we are in the earth lineage. And I think that's very essential to this moment as well. Absolutely. Um, I really thank you for sharing that experience and those words. Like that is a very beautiful moment. I feel even for me hearing you say that, I could like feel that going through my body. And I think that's, that's just very precious. So I thank you for sharing that. Um, you were like, just right now you mentioned real quick about like, cosmology and it just, it kind of, I just looked down and I looked at the cover. Did you want to talk a bit about the cover? Because this is very beautiful. And I'm not sure if you want to talk a little bit more about where it came from. Um, and I don't know, I don't know why, whatever you said, just said now, like I just, it just made me think of this. And so I don't know if you want to share a little bit. Well, more. it's, it's actually really perceptive of you because <laughs> um, that is a river in Canada that has uh, been polluted. And uh, the artist um, who, who made that painting is Christy Belcourt. She's an indigenous leader. Uh, and my, I would have to say one of my very favorite artists in the world uh, from Canada, her artwork is stunning and gorgeous. And um, in the front cover of the book, it tells a story in detail. So I don't want to ruin it and not say it precisely because it's a quote from her. And I don't want to misrepresent what she said, but you know, the essence of it is a river that was polluted from extractive industries. And this is like this beautiful painting that is an expression of, of going out and healing the land. And, you know, how do we repair the waterway and how do we bring our prayers and our blessings to the waterway to bring it healing? And then, you know, all the practical aspects of how do you, how do you clean up a waterway? And this painting, as I understand it, um, is a dedication to that. And um, I love Christy Belcourt's work, and I feel incredibly honored that she was so generous to let me put this on the cover of my book. Um, I saw the image maybe about four or five years ago, and you know how you you can't explain that, but you see an image, and it it completely you know gave me chills, and I, I fell in love with it inexplicably. But it's interesting that you mentioned it after my river story because it's about the river. 
Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Um, no, that's really beautiful. And I can imagine that being an honor. Like that, that that's really wonderful. <laughs> like to see a painting and then years later, it's like the cover of your book. Like that's just um, my very last question is for the last couple of minutes. Um, you know, we've been talking about colonialism, patriarchy, you touched a bit on war. Um, you know, I feel like it's kind of strange to have a discussion around that without talking a bit about what's happening right now or witnessing in Gaza. Um, are there any... I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that, like, directly from any of the themes in your book, but I just wanted to kind of open that space up here, um, just, you know, even just out of respect for what we're witnessing going on and the tragedies out there. Absolutely. You know, and I'm glad you brought it up. And, you know, I um, was mentioning it earlier in context to militarism. You know, the, uh, again, it, it's, it's, it's not a soundbite answer. Um, you know, the, the, the immediate answer is we need a ceasefire immediately you know so i i will talk some a little bit about um my views on it in context of the book but i don't want to uh you know philosophize or um sort of analyze things without first saying first and foremost this has got to stop and we need a ceasefire and people are dying right now and i know many of us are up late at night not sleeping because it is so disturbing and awful. And, um, you know, uh, you know, probably by the time this airs, we're going to have some kind of outcome from the proceedings in South Africa. So where we don't know where that's going to land. I hope by the time this airs, it has the impact we want. So, you know, we don't know where that's at as the standing of our conversation in this moment. Um, so first and foremost, this atrocity must end. And that's the most important thing. I don't care how you turn it upside, downside, whatever you want to say. You do not go around killing children and civilians. Stop. Full stop. Um, and um, so in context to the book, having said that, you know, I, I think it's a continuation of these themes of identity, of uh, whose land are we on, of racism of years of of trauma from different populations of people and that trauma never being addressed we should not be having politicians sorting out what's going on we need healers we need experts on trauma we need peacemakers we need women it's a fact that you know you can look at any stat that most uh places that have peace or where peace agreements are made or peace is long-term held, women are in positions of leadership. So we're seeing hyper-masculinity. We're seeing uh, every, everything we've talked about on steroids happening in Gaza. And heartbreaking can't even begin to address what is going on and must be stopped. And so, um, you know, again, it's untangling these systems. You know, October 7th was absolutely atrocious. We want there to be the return safely of hostages. It was a horrible act. And the response has been completely outsized. And again, these these words are too small. They're way too small for the condition. But um, for this terrible cycle of violence to stop, requires that we address it at a deep systemic level or it will repeat itself. And that's why I got into this whole concept of worldviews and 
the fact of huge amounts of disentanglement uh, and dismantling of systems of oppression because they will repeat themselves if we don't go to the root causes. And I would also add on the other end that we're also calling forth a world of justice and love and liberation and healing and equity um, in this terrible moment. And those two things have to go together because this has to go somewhere. This has to go somewhere that is better than we are now. And people cannot be massacred in vain. I appreciate that a lot. Um, And I'm grateful to have held that space with you. Um, And I think that those are really great closing words. People should not be massacred in vain, 100%. And I think it sums up a lot of really what is uh, like what is colonialism, what is patriarchy, and and you know what what you're talking about about worldviews, right? How we dismantle that with worldviews and remaking a world in crisis. So thank you so much, Austri, for coming on the show. Um, everyone, please be welcome to check out her book.